Hello, my name is Justin McClure and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today, we're going to get a little dark because we're getting into the cinema of Jacques Tournard. That's right. We're talking about the director of Out of the Past, Cat People, I Walked with a Zombie, The Leopard Man, many other Hollywood genre classics. And I wanted to talk about Turner because I feel like I've always had a hard time getting a handle on him as an artist. Really? I feel that that kind of reaction to his work is reflected in the way that he's discussed a lot when his movies come up, which is often that his name is pushed to the side to make way for other people like, ah, yes, Val Luton's Cat People or, you know, Robert Mitchum's great performance in Out of the Past. And if you look up like Jacques Tournard as a filmmaker or an auteur, what you'll find is a lot of like, uh, yeah, and then he did a bunch of other things, and let's move on from that. Well, it is very true that he has been heavily overshadowed by Val Luton, and it's possible we have some listeners who don't know who Val Luton is. He was the producer of a string of black-and-white horror films for RKO in the 1940s, which had the incredible innovation while Universal was doing all of its monster movies, Frankenstein, Dracula, The Wolfman. RKO and Val Luton said, we don't have monsters, we have the dark, we have suggestion, we have fear itself that is our our main antagonist. And so Cat People is the most famous example of that. And so for some of Turner's most famous movies, there's a question of authorship. To what extent is that signature style Val Luton? And to what extent is it Jacques Tourneur? I mean, you just have to watch the other Tourneur films to see that that style has been prevalent through all of his motion pictures. So it's not that hard to kind of like pinpoint as he was a collaborative element in the making of those motion pictures. If he had just done those Val Luton pictures and then the disappeared, that would be one thing or just made anonymous films. But when you watch anything that came after, like I Walked as a Zombie or The Leopard Man, they still have that same style, even though that Luton isn't behind him and he is t- tackling all sorts of properties. But I think that what we will surmise, you know, throughout this is that one of the reasons he doesn't get talked about so much is that he did do so many things and that he would just take whatever job came his way. And a lot of those were just Westerns or dramas, or there was even a medieval action film starring Burt Lancaster, The Flame and the Arrow. And they just don't get talked about that much or are overshadowed by bigger films. Well, I said that I had trouble getting a handle on him as an artist, and I think I have a better handle on him after this week, but it is still a bit tricky. I mean, he's made a number of films that I like a lot. And as you alluded to earlier, the common pitch on him is that he worked in the shadows. He was a master of mood. And I know that some of his admirers speak of a dreamlike, otherworldly quality in his movies, which is a frequency that I've sometimes been able to tune into, but only only periodically. I have a quote here from Martin Scorsese, who provided the introduction to Chris Fujiwara's definitive book about Turner. Scorsese said, His own touch as a filmmaker is elusive yet tangible, like the presence of a ghost. In a way, you could say that Turner's touch is so refined and subtle that he haunts his films. It's as though he cast a, a spell over each project. I mean, I would say that if I had to describe Turner's style compact would be the best way to say it. Like, I went through his filmography, he has never made a movie that's over 98 minutes. Now, that compactness could be, um, you know, transposed on the cat people in the sense that they didn't show the monsters because they wanted to create a sense of mood. Also, they didn't have that much money, but that can evolve into a style in of itself that you can tell a story that has a lot of drama, 
character, and even action within a very tight frame that when you talk about Hollywood movie directors, oftentimes that's not the case. They make bloated two-hour epics because they can. And that was not the case when you look at Tournard's work. That's right. Turner was... Very happy to uh, stay with B-movies. He did eventually graduate to being a sort of A-movie director, but he often worked in disreputable genres and was happy to be there. In the few interviews that survive or that he gave, you know, he did not give the impression of regarding himself as a great artist. He thought of himself as a craftsman. He didn't give the impression of being somebody who was an intellectual about his work. And yet, nevertheless, many people have found a style, a very, a very consistent style that has united his films. And I'm sure we'll like, we'll reveal what that style is as we talk about the movies. But I mean, one of the things we can say preliminarily is much of his artistry comes through just good old fashioned mise-en-scene, you know, I'm talking. Oh, he is so good at that. And I think that goes into compactness and just like the miniaturization of the stories that he's telling. Like uh, we both watched the movie Canyon Passage, which was his first color picture. It is a sprawling, complicated film with tons of stuff going on in it. It's also 92 minutes. And I think that is important when you talk about his work. Well, I know that we said this week that we weren't going to talk about the Val Luton movies, uh, although I did watch uh, two of them. Anyway, just because they're both... Why? why? Uh, well, I'll tell you why. Because A, I wanted to watch them, and I had some time. And B, they are both either... One of them was 66 minutes, and the other one was 72 minutes. And also, I wanted to get a better a better handle on uh, his artistry, you know? And I won't talk too much about Cat People, because I know you didn't revisit it. But Cat People was the one from 1942 that absolutely transformed his career. We can talk about his background, I guess. You know, he came from France. Uh, his father was a director of silent movies who brought him over to America as a child. Turner stayed in America, made short films. Eventually, Cat People transformed his career. And Cat People is a movie that introduces some of the feeling of displacement, some of the feeling of ambiguity. I think ambiguity is one of the key things that runs through his movies. You know, our sympathies in Cat People are complex, and it's often unclear exactly what is happening and why it is happening and what people's motivations are and whether or not like who we should be rooting for and why. And these are complicated emotions that recur throughout his movies and i think throughout all the movies we watched this week i think that that is something that he can dig his teeth into as a filmmaker because like he did work on poverty row before he made the val luton films and he could have adopted a style that is just workmanlike in you know a goal to just get these things done but his films don't have that they are so complicated that they hit so many emotional beats as they go along that just shows him as a filmmaker that I think has been undervalued uh, as just an auteur when you talk about his career because... You know, for a guy that has a lot of classics out of the past, Cat People, I Walked with a Zombie, even like Night of the Demon gets mentioned in that same breath, people rarely talk about the other films that he made. And 
this week I kind of like thought about why is that? Like, is it because there weren't any stars in them? Do we just talk about the ones that are the clearest noirs and the clearest horror films? I mean, that probably has a lot to do with them. But what is it about his particular films that haven't uh, stayed in circulation as much as other ones? Is it because most of these were RKO pictures and they did not have the same kind of widespread TV play as a lot of the other like Universal or even Fox films? It's interesting that you mentioned the lack of stars because one of the people who we worked with in a lot of films was an actor named Dana Andrews. And on the Blu-ray release of Night of the Demon that Indicator put out, there's an interview with Chris Fujiwara, who is like the big Turner expert. <laughs> Jerry Lewis, Turner. That's, you know, the path that that guy took. And he points out that Dana Andrews worked with uh, many great filmmakers, including Otto Preminger and Fritz Lang also. And one reason why he is held dear by a certain kind of cinephile is he's a very understated actor. He's a real underactor, a minimalist, if you will. And there's something about his lack of uh, aggressive personality on the screen that uh, is ideally suited to a director's cinema. Mm. Like people gravitate towards movies for for movie stars, but what does Jacques Tourneur offer you? He offers you, uh, well, first of all, Tourneur's films are often rather slow-paced, rather complicated. People have pointed out that because the tone is mellow, the nuances of the tone become very stronger. And sometimes people go towards movies because, like, they're not looking for that sort of thing. Well, they're looking for something clear, and they're looking for something that they can grasp onto. I mean, we can jump into Canyon Passage. The film stars uh, Dana Andrews. Uh, like I mentioned, it was Turner's first color film, 1946. And it is a sprawling story of settlers in Oregon. And Dana Andrews plays... A, a fellow that owns a store in a small town on indigenous land. I mean, everything is indig indigenous land, but specifically they still live there and are in conflict with those people. At the same time that his uh, best bud is a gambler who's a banker, and there's also a love triangle going on and a baddie as well that is setting stuff up. A love quadrangle actually. <laughs> and it's a film of kind of conflicting emotions as well, because in one scene one of the settlers will be like, you know what? We took their land and, you know, it is theirs, but we're here now and I'll take my guns and do anything to defend it. Your emotions in the love triangle or the, the love quadrangle or whatever, the love, the love uh, square can be very complicated because there, there's a conflict between Dana Andrews and his best friend, Brian Donlevy. Brian Donlevy is a compulsive gambler in the film. And you're not entirely sure who to root for in that conflict. And actually, to be honest, the movie is sometimes a little hard to follow. Didn't you find it that way? I was just laser focused. I knew exactly what was happening, going through all the musical numbers and the amazing sequence where they raise a whole house in a day. I mean, that was incredible. And visually, the movie is extraordinary. Again, I, I hate to quote Martin Scorsese again, but he is a smarter man than I. He pointed out in his essay that when you think of Westerns, you think of you know, Monument Valley. You think of vast plains and deserts. You think of John Ford, pretty much. Yeah, yeah, basically. Or even like a Roy Rogers Western. He's always like riding the plane or whatever. Yeah, because they're in LA. That's where they're shooting. And that's all they got. <laughs> yeah, but in this one, it's a movie of passageways. It's a movie of clearing paths in, in greenery. And it's also a movie of being rained out, you know, seeking shelter from the rain. It's also a film of complete restlessness in the sense that every character 
is mostly uncomfortable about their place in life and that they want to go somewhere else. They wish they were somewhere like nicer, even though they are surrounded by pure beauty. And you mentioned that you don't think that Tourneur was a very intellectual filmmaker. I mean, he said that himself during interviews. I mean, in in person, I think he was a very uh, smart and intelligent filmmaker. I just don't think he... Uh, you know, I just don't think he talked about his work that but, way. But like you watch this movie and Tuner made a very clear decision that the camera will always be in motion. People will always be moving through the frame. There's a restlessness to it that is thematically um, really important when you kind of imprint it on everything that's going on. And I think that when you watch the movie with that in mind, it becomes an entirely like different experience because there's just so much going on in what for all intents and purposes, should be just a simple Western with good guys, bad guys, and the indigenous people who are technically the bad guys, but as well, you know, they're just wanting to defend what is theirs and has been taken away from them. Turner was undeniably just incredibly smart and attentive to the way that bodies moved through spaces in these movies, and just the the texture of... Uh, composition, the texture of locations. I mean, another thing that I learned from Chris Fujiwara is he pointed out a scene in Night of the Demon, and it's it's such a small scene, it seems so insignificant, but it's sort of a synecdoche for everything else about Turner. Dana Andrews is in Peggy Cummins' house, and she gives him this book to read, and he turns over to the side to read the book, to, so th- because the light source is coming from the fireplace, and he wants the light to you know illuminate the book. Now, a normal movie, he would have just looked at the book and they wouldn't have worried about the light source. It was apparently very important to Turner that Dana Andrews do that shift in his body because he wanted that naturalness. You know, he wanted the movie to feel lived in and textured. I mean, I don't know if it made a huge difference for the audience for that particular scene, but that philosophy applied to his work in large, I think, I think does translate. And many critics over the years, including Manny Farber, have pointed to how alive spaces seem in his films, how alive objects seem. There is a moment near the beginning of Canyon Passage where somebody uh, puts out a fire place and it's just as the camera's moving through the shot and there's like a beautiful orange light that shines briefly on the characters as they pass and that is a very conscious decision that you could blink and you'll miss it but you can tell that that was very important for Tourneur in this scene and I think that's what separates his films from some of the more workmanlike directors that were doing the same stuff like western or noirs like out of the past which I think that is you know genuinely accepted as the great noir along with stuff like Double Indemnity. Yeah, so Out of the Past, probably his most famous film, I think even including Cat People. This film from 1947, it's one of a number of Turner films that unfolds through flashback. We meet Robert Mitchum in the current day with his fiancée, played by Virginia Houston, and he seems to have an idyllic life, but it turns out that his past has caught up with him. So he drives with his fiancée, all night to this appointment that he has in Lake Tahoe, and he explains to her who he really is. He was once a New York private detective, and he was hired by a gangster played by a young and intensely charismatic Kirk Douglas. And he was hired by this gangster to find a woman who uh, shot Kirk Douglas and ripped him off, stole his money, and Douglas just wants her back. And of course, he found her and they had an affair. And Robert Mitchum had to flee. You know, when you talk about 
the kind of contrast of Tourneur. This is a film that has everything. Like, it looks beautiful. When you think of noir, you're probably thinking of a shot uh, from out of the past. It has the contrast in Robert Mitchum's cool, unflappable noir uh, hero with, like, the long trench coat that would become the norm and adopted by filmmakers like Jean-Pierre Melville. And you also have his cool kind of deadpan against Kirk Douglas's macho charisma as the villain of the piece. You got the flashback structure. You got the hero that is essentially doomed from the start. It is a noir story, and like all the great ones, there is no way of him escaping the fate that shall befall him by the end of the story. And I think one of the reasons why it fits so comfortably in Turner's body of work is the high degree of ambiguity to everything about it. There is ambiguity to the Jane Greer character. She's the one who Robert Mitchum was originally uh, tasked with finding and then had the affair with. Because when Robert Mitchum finally finds his way to Lake Tahoe and meets up with Kirk Douglas for this big meeting, he finds that Jane Greer and Kirk Douglas are now back together. And in fact, most remarkably, Kirk Douglas now wants to hire Robert Mitchum again to do another job for him, even though he's been betrayed. So there's ambiguity about Jane Greer, her motives, whether she's good or bad. There's ambiguity about why is Kirk Douglas hiring Mitchum again? Why is Mitchum doing the job again? To what extent does Mitchum want out of this lifestyle? To what extent does he want his current fiance or Jane Greer? And these complicated feelings continue to the famous final scene, which, of course, we will not spoil, but it is unclear, or, or not definitively clear at least, to what extent the outcome is a happy one, to what extent it's the one that Mitchum wanted, and why. I mean, the characters even ask themselves the questions at the end of the movie, like, was he going to do this? And they don't know, and the audience doesn't really know either, because it's up to each individual viewer to bring their own interpretation to the events that are presented to them. Did you watch Nightfall by any chance from 1957? I did not. Uh, but that's another one of his famous noirs, I know. Oh, yeah. I mean, I just want to put in a recommendation for it because it's like, it's kind of a B-noir. I don't think it's really gone down as one of the classics exactly, but it's just a really terrific movie. It stars Aldo Ray, you know, everybody's favorite big brick of an actor just a big old block of meat and I, you know i'm not even gonna bother describing the plot but it's got all the turner stuff if i could recommend one that i watched this week as well and of the indies is just a uh, delightful movie with uh jean peters stars as the uh, captain of a pirate ship and you know, we were talking about ambiguity. Like, she is, for all intents and purposes, a villain in this movie. Is that, like, she is killing the English, those damn capitalist English, and she is just a badass. She's a sword fighter. She was trained by uh, the pirate Blackbeard, and she could take him on in a fight. And the film is about a romance, but it's also about her kind of defining herself as a person and staying true to herself all the way up to the end, even if you're not quite sure how you land on the finale of the picture which again you know i don't want to spoil here but i would highly recommend people to check out and like a lot of uh tourner's color films it is beautiful if you think he can use black and white in a striking way the way that he uses color uh is rarely surpassed around the period that he worked because it is just like it burns your eyeballs seeing it play off on screen and like all the movies we mentioned and of the indies 81 minutes <clears throat> love it Oh my God, love it so much. Well, I know that we both watched the movie that is common 
commonly considered Turner's last great film, and that is Night of the Demon, also known as Curse of the Demon from 1957, which comes in a couple different versions, doesn't it? Well, it's a film that is famously compromised and that it wasn't what Turner wanted in the sense that the film wasn't supposed to feature an awesome looking demon man that shows up twice in the film. Although I do like the demon man. I think it's a problem that it shows up so early. I think it it would have helped if there was a little more suspense getting to it. Well, you know, it could be the Hitchcock rule is that you know what's coming, you know that it's real, so you're kind of one step ahead of the characters and you're worried for them because you know that this thing could actually take them down, even though that's not the way the producers thought of it. They just put the demon man at the beginning because they wanted to give, you know, the rubes in the audience what they wanted. An awesome looking demon man! I also think that's great for Hitchcock, but it's not so great for Turner, where so much of the special magic of his films involves both literally and figuratively being in the dark. Watching Night of the Demon this time, I was taken aback at how rushed the ending feels, where suddenly when the character realizes what's going on, it's already kind of wrapping up and it's like, it feels like there's like 30 minutes missing from it, even though that we watched the extended version and that there's a version that's 10 minutes shorter than the one that me and you watched. Right. Which I think was the one that was released widely theatrically. Although the extended version, which runs 96 minutes, I think is the preferred version. And had you seen this movie before, Will? No, I actually never had. I'd always wanted to though. It again stars Dana Andrews. He plays a psychology professor who's in London. And by the way, this is a British production, but he arrives in London for some sort of paranormal psychology conference. And uh, just like uh, Colin Firth in Magic in the Moonlight, he finds himself a skeptic drawn to this um, mysterious person who claims to have connection with uh, uh, the otherworldly. And in this case, it is the leader of a satanic cult played by one Niall McGuinness. And there was a mysterious disappearance that was connected in some way to this mysterious cult. And uh, this cult leader says, you know, you're going to die in two days. And, and I know it. And believe me, I can, I'm in touch with the supernatural because look at this wind that I'm making blow in the air right all around you. I like how the villain of this piece is, you know, like all the greatest villain, just a petty little man who kills people who say, well, I don't believe in what you're doing. He's like, oh, no, it's true. And to prove it, I'm going to kill you, which seemingly is probably not something that could have lasted that long, <laughs> considering he's killing anybody who gets close to the cult that he's running. This movie is very much a throwback to his work with Val Luton, and that's why the awesome rubber monster creature strikes a bit of a strange note in it. Not an entirely unwelcome note, but a strange note, just because like the Val Luton movie, so much of this is is about fear itself rather than an externalized monster. But nevertheless, the movie does uh, largely follow the old Val Luton model of uh, suspense and understatement and uh, uh, sitting there in the dark. While a great movie, I do think that it's so close to the Val Luton model that it makes sense that people are like, well, Val Luton was the real master of Turner's filmography, and he's just trying to imitate him. Well, I think all you have to do is look at some of the other genre films that he made. Look at the Westerns, look at the noir films. They may be visually different, but uh, they they are the work of the same man. Yeah, there's like a consistent vision behind all of the stuff that he's done, like Curse of the Demon slash Night of the Demon. It may feel like cat people, 
but the texture there is perfectly tournard. Like you see that in I Walk with a Zombie and you can feel it in Curse of the Demon, even in its UK setting, which gives it a whole different flavor as it plays. And that I actually love in the movie compared to the other ones that he did. So in the 1940s, Tourneur did a good enough job on the Val Luton movies, which were very financially successful, that he was able to be promoted to A Pictures for a little while. He made all sorts of movies, you know, many good films, not many breakout blockbusters, not many movies that are remembered in quite the same way as, say, another Val Luton director, Robert Wise's movies are remembered. Uh, Not as good a director, but a man who made many hits. In the 50s, he fell back down to B-movies. I mean, he didn't just fall down to B-movies. He took the pill of all early filmmakers who decided, I gotta work. He became a TV director. But there are many hidden gems in the Tourneur canon. And I do want to say one more thing that I learned from Chris Fujiwara, who may as well be a co-host on this episode. I've quoted him so much. But Fujiwara pointed out that Tourneur's films often depict... The, the transgressing of boundaries in some way, whether it's between humans and animals in Cat People or the living and the dead in I Walked with a Zombie or lawfulness and criminality or wilderness and civilization. Turner is very comfortable in the gray area. And if, if you would like to live in the gray area, uh, yeah, you will enjoy Turner's films. And you know what? I made a joke last week that one of Turner's last film, The Giant of Marathon, was where all Hollywood directors go to die. And doing a little bit more research, the film is very well loved and people consider it one of the best peplums, even though the Turner didn't technically direct all of it because supposedly the screenwriter Bruno Velati directed a lot of it, as well as Mario Bava, the cinematographer supposedly is one of the co-directors on the film as well. So you know what? Turner, even though... You know, he did go out with some stinkers like uh, War Gods of the Deep about fishmen. He still had a few up his sleeve like the Giant of Marathon, and it wasn't a complete kaput near the end of his career. I didn't know until this week that he directed the Comedy of Terrors with uh, Vincent Price and Boris Karloff. Did you ever see that one? I did not. Is it any good? I feel like I've seen a lot of those kind of all the horror stars come together and it's always disappointing. Yeah, it's it's not very funny. Although, you know, it it looks good. All those movies look kind of good. There's that, I guess. So as per usual, you can send us letters at important cinema club podcast at gmail.com and our first letter is from johnny mockney and it goes hello justin and will i discovered your podcast about a year ago when i found your sergio corbucci episode during a spaghetti western deep dive i quickly became a regular listener wait i want to interrupt here like i read we did a sergio corbucci episode i remember it very well i remember watching django on a bus <laughs> The way it was meant to be seen. First of all, I want you to know I've seen Django a number of times. I was not watching it for the first time on a bus. Django! (laughs) Uh, The letter continues. I quickly became a regular listener and not long after that, a patron. Thank you. I want to thank you two for putting an incredible amount of work into what I can confidently call my favorite podcast. You are both entertainingly charismatic and well-read cinephiles. And as a Michigan resident, I feel a close kinship to you both since Michiganers are just angry Canadians. (laughs) I did not know that. Well, I mean, Michigan... Michigan is one of the only places that is technically directly north of Canadian territory. Did you know that? Detroit is directly north of Windsor. So think about that. Really? I did not know that. Yeah, you drive south from Detroit and you get to Windsor. Ah, Michigan, the land of Sam Raimi. (laughs) 
As time passes, I find myself using words like disreputable more often because of my constant exposure to your conversations. I'm guessing that's a word you say, Will. I don't think I've ever said disreputable. I've, I think I've said disreputable in this episode, haven't I? <laughs> there you go. I have thought out some amazing films because of your show. Speaking of which, I don't know when the last time was that someone thanked you for recommending Detour, but thanks for recommending Detour. I bought the Criterion Blu-ray during the last Barnes & Noble sale and has quickly become one of my all-time favorites. Will, I think Criterion should give us like money when someone buys a copy of Detour on Blu-ray. I think they should give us money and I think they should invite us to participate in some of the special features. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. When they do another Edgar G. Elmer film? Well, you know, I should point out, I believe... It's not sold out yet, but it's close. But we did Edgar G. Elmer's Bluebeard on Gold Ninja Video, and that is an amazing release that I'm really proud of. Oh, yeah. So, uh, letter continues. Lastly, since you never, ever get topic suggestions, <laughs> the Spaghetti Western aficionado in me would love to hear your thoughts on the other Sergio of the genre, Sergio Solima. He has a trilogy of fantastic westerns starring Thomas Milan with some pointed social commentary. Of course, I'll continue being a loyal listener no matter the topic. Keep up the good work. All the best. I like Sergio Solima. Have you ever seen his movies will i haven't no uh didn't he do yeah he did face to face he had like a trilogy of westerns uh he did the big gun down run man run that when i was getting into these movies they were not available in any good version and since then they're like super accessible on like arrow video has probably put them out yeah, yeah and yeah. all that stuff he also did the uh fascinating if a little bit difficult to get into uh oliver reed fabio testi film revolver uh, the Eurocrime film that uh, Quentin Tarantino uses the theme song for that movie all the time in his films because it's an Ennio Morricone track, of course. Would you be interested in some point at doing just a spaghetti Western episode like on the genre itself? Yeah, I could easily do that. No problem. Yeah, because I, I think I would enjoy like, I know, taking a broader look at it than necessarily just doing Leone or whatever. Yeah, I mean, Leone probably pretty boring, I feel, if we had to do him. Well, we should do Leone, like, if if we need to do, like, another super popular one to get some clicks. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we obviously, we love Leone, but it's just like, what else is there to say? It's like, I mean, you, why don't you just take that, like, 2,000-page doorstop that Christopher Frayling wrote? We're not going to say anything that he, that is not included in that book. So, yeah, definitely. We'll definitely do a Spaghetti Western singing. Maybe Salima will come up on the episode. But sh should we do, should we do an, epi an episode on that guy whose name I've already forgotten? Sergio, Sergio. Salima? Yeah. Who I'm sure is wonderful and I would love him if I saw his films. His films are very political. There's a lot to like dig into them. Okay, yeah. I think out of all of the uh, filmmakers that did Spaghetti Western, there are a lot of kind of like political stuff, but because he was a writer, his films were very literary in their presentation. And something like Face to Face, speaking of ambiguity, does an amazing scene where like, the hero of the piece ends up becoming the villain and the villain ends up becoming the hero by the end of the motion picture. So he does some really interesting stuff with the genre. But anyway, uh, what are we doing on our Patreon this week, Will? We're talking about a cult classic that you've probably heard of by the name of Cabin Boy, starring Chris Elliott. You want to buy a monkey, Will? <laughs> oh, do I ever. Uh, man, oh man, I hate them fancy lads. <laughs> so yes, we're talking about the classic Chris Elliott film that features the only feature film performance of David Letterman not playing himself. So uh, this is a film that, if you don't know it, it's infamous, almost Ishtar level, known as a bad movie. Is it? Well, we get into it. You can listen to it at patreon.com slash The Important Cinema Club. And what are we doing next week, Will? Next week, we return to Hong Kong, one of our favorite places to go to. There's part of us, I'm sure, that would love to do a Hong Kong filmmaker every single week. But of course, we do look elsewhere in the globe. But Next week, we are talking about the granddaddy of martial arts films, 
maybe not the granddaddy, but one, but one of the OGs for sure. We're talking about Lau Kar Lung. And what are some of his films, Justin? 36 Chamber of Shaolin. Uh, all of the films that Chang Che made early in his career, because he was the action choreographer along with Tan Gai. He also made... Um, why am I having such a brain fart all of this? It's because like he's he made... It's either Chang Che or him who made those movies. Yeah, Legendary Weapons of China, Dirty Ho. Eight Diagram Pole Fighter, that was him, Eight right? Eight Diagram Pole Fighter. I mean, Lockhart Lung has made so many masterpieces. And what's crazy is, I don't think he ever really gets talked about as a director that much, even though that he defined what we know as martial arts cinema, choreographed martial arts cinema. And not just like the beginner who's like, oh yeah, he set, you know, the rules down. Then, you know, we made better from there. No, no, no. He did some of the best that stand to this day as the best of the genre. I mean, Eight Diagram Pole Fighter, the final fight in that movie, unsurpassable. So good. Incredible. And you know, I'm going to make a controversial uh, statement. 36 Chamber of Shaolin, not his best. Well, I'm going to watch it this week, revisit it for the first time in many years and find out. All right. Yep. So that's what we're doing uh, next week. And until then, my name is Justin the Glue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Justin here, wanting to let people know that we are doing a patron drive this month. We want to hit 400 patrons, and if we do, you can vote on what marathon me and Will have to suffer through. The choices are DreamWork Films, but no Shreks allowed. The American Pie Saga. Yes, we will watch five films in the American Pie series. The Last Days of Jackie Chan in Hollywood. Of course, that's pretty self-explanatory. And John Cleese has bills to pay, where we will pick a bunch of John Cleese films to watch and talk about. But we will only do this marathon if we get 400 patrons by March. So go to patreon.com slash the important cinema club and become a patron now. Join the actual club that you are listening to and vote which marathon me and Will have to suffer through. Because once we do watch it, we will record a podcast that will be exclusive to all the people that have joined up until the end of February. So do it now. Also, just a reminder that we are currently doing the Important Cinema Club Cinematheque online every Friday starting at 7 p.m. It's a double bill. And you can get more information by going to my Twitter at J. And finally, I would like to thank all of the new patron subscribers who include Johannes Masaidi, Y2K Podcast, Cole Smith, Jesse, Nestor, Trulio, Jack Anderson, Forrest Sturgis, Zachary Kaplan, Rob Lee, Nate Hamlet, and Alex Senesi. Thank you very much for becoming patrons. We could not do it without you. And thanks to your help, we are that much closer to the 400 patron goal and the big marathon bonanza. And with that, we now return you to your regular scheduled podcast. Well, it's time for a Woodman alert with everyone's Woodman fan, or number one fan, Will Woodman Sloan. Chapter one. He adored the Woodman. He idolized him all out of proportion. So people were talking about like Rifkin's festival and I was like, whoa, did Adam Rifkin do his own retrospective? Oh, I wish. But no, we're, we're instead talking about Mort Rifkin, the star of uh, the new Woody Allen joint. But it was released in, I guess, Spain and maybe some other European territories last fall. We'll probably never get a North American theatrical release for obvious reasons. No. What are you talking about, Will, though? Haven't you read <laughs> Woody Allen's biography where he spends 500 pages going through documentation clearing his name 
Only an innocent man would do that. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, putting that aside, he did make a new movie. And if there's one thing we know, it's that uh, we, we need a new movie from him. He's still got important new things to say. Uh, it's not just going to be the same things he's been saying for the last 50 years. Wait a minute. I think I uh, sense a little sarcasm in the tone of your voice. I say that with some affection because, as you know, I'm a completist. I have seen every one of his 49 movies, 50 if you include What's Up, Tiger Lily, uh, 51 if you include New York Stories. So, of course, uh, 52 if you include Don't Drink the Water, made for TV. I was going to say, what about Don't Drink the Water, the TV yeah, movie? I, I've seen it. I've seen them all. Um, so I did, of course, watch Rifkin's Festival. And uh, let me just tell you briefly what it's about. It stars... Uh, everyone's favorite Wallace Shawn. I do love Wallace Shawn. Uh, yeah, I, I love him too. And I, I love that we have a Wallace Shawn starring vehicle in the year 2021. Have you ever been in any Woody Allen movies before? Oh, he's been in like five or six, but always in like supporting roles. But he plays an American novelist whose wife, played by Gina Gershon, is a publicist. And they go to the San Sebastian Film Festival. And I bet you're wondering, why the San Sebastian Film Festival? Well, it's because they put up some money for the venture. <laughs> and nobody else would have it. And they are there. And uh, she is the publicist for a hotshot young filmmaker played by Louis Garrel. And she has a bit of a crush on Louis Garrel. And so there is a Wallace Shawn, Gina Gershon, Louis Garrel love triangle. <laughs> this is this is the cinema that no one else is giving us right now this is why i, I stick it out with the Woodman to get stuff like that Ooh, wait i have the most important question here how big a role does the goot have in this movie and i'm talking about steve gutenberg oh very small oh, I, boo! I know i don't want to disappoint all the fans he's in it only briefly uh but it is great to see him <laughs> I mean, okay is he all ripped and buff like he has been of a lot of few years. Well, he keeps his shirt on, but... Uh, uh, no, Woodman, give your fans what they want. So how about as a movie? Did you have fun, Will? Well, I always have fun watching his movies. It's fun to see all the Woody Allen stuff. You know, it's got it's got everything. It, it opens with Wallace Shawn sitting on the shrink's couch. You know, within five minutes, he's talking about the universe is meaningless. Uh, wh what's the point of it all? And it's like, yes, we are back in Woody land. But I'll tell you what I found really funny about it. There's a stunning lack of texture to Woody Allen's films now. So Louis Garrel plays a hotshot young filmmaker who is described as a politically conscious filmmaker. And his new movie, he says he hopes that it will solve the Arab-Israeli conflict. And I'm sitting here thinking, really? Like, Wallace Shawn is like, okay, but politics, politics aren't real. What's real are the big issues, the stuff that Ingmar Bergman dealt with, you know, the silence of God, stuff like that. And I mean, I just think it's funny, like, that Woody Allen, who is clearly, you know, a little blinkered, clearly not all that engaged with contemporary cinema, he looks at contemporary cinema and he's like, oh, all these fucking political filmmakers, they're not dealing with the real stuff. And it's like, okay, well, what are the political filmmakers? What are the politics that they're dealing with? And he's like, well, modern filmmakers, they're talking about like... Israel and Palestine. What are some big issues? <laughs> tell me, tell me a movie that hit the festival circuit in the last ten years that had anything to do with Israel and Palestine and that conflict, or one that was popular enough that its director could be like a hotshot walking the quasi or whatever you know, a film festival thing. Yeah, I'll tell you the hotshot directors. The hotshot directors are the ones who make a movie about how racism is bad, and then they get to a Disney contract. 
and that's what it was all building. Or they're like really showy filmmakers who do films in one take that star Michael Keaton. And that's what, you know, grabs people's imagination. Yeah. The Woodman obviously hasn't seen a film in like 40 years. And I think that's I think that's a bit of a shame. I mean, a lot of the movie, it's broken up with dream sequences where Wallace Shawn imagines himself being in like The Seventh Seal and Breathless and Jules and Jim, you know, all the late 50s, early 60s art house classics. And obviously, those are the movies that Woody Allen loved when he was a kid. I don't begrudge him that. That's, uh, well, kid. He loved when he was in his 20s. <laughs> yeah. Um, and But that's fine. Those made a huge impression on him. I do think it's a shame the extent to which he did not either keep up with or internalize or take seriously all the cinema that came later. I don't expect him to love Abbas Kiarostami in the same way that he loves Ingmar Bergman, but there's no sense that he ever, like, ever saw an Abbas Kiarostami movie, you know? It's called Arrested Development, Will. <laughs> That's what it is. It's sad, I think. I mean, I was I was looking at his IMDb. I don't think I've seen anything... Yeah, I haven't seen the last four things that he did. What was the last one you saw? I think I saw Cafe Society on a plane. Okay, that was the last one I liked. I was like, I wish uh, Bruce Willis was in this. 